Good morning, Sun Valley Church, and welcome again to our presentation of the Word of God to you via video. Uh, we're thankful that God has allowed us to present His Word to you in this way. Uh, we would prefer, of course, uh, to be together, and we're all looking forward to that day. I, I've heard from so many of you about how anxious you are to get back together into the fellowship and, and worship together, and I am with you on that. I cannot wait. It's going to be a great day when we get together. But this kind of gives us a taste of yearning for heaven, right? This is what yearning for heaven is kind of like. But uh, we're looking forward to that day when we can get together and worship together, and, and in God's time that will happen. Uh, but today we're going to be looking again at Philippians chapter 2, and if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn there. Uh, as we start thinking about the text before us, I think it's important to understand that there is ha or has been an ongoing difficulty with balancing the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, especially when it comes to the doctrines of salvation. This has been a, an ongoing struggle in the life of the church uh, since the beginning or the inception of the church. For centuries it's been happening. As created beings who have been regenerated, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, what is our role in spiritual growth? What are you and I as Christians expected to do to participate in the sanctification of our souls, the, the, the production of Christ-likeness in us? Now, are we just to passively sit by and trust that God will do his things in our lives, kind of like let go and let God, or are we to actively and purposefully pursue obedience and spiritual growth? Is it up to God or is it up to us is the question of the day. I know for many that Christian life is more duty than delight. Many believers struggle to be joyful Christians. They live with constant pressure and stress over their relationship with God, uh, wondering and fretting whether or not God is sufficiently pleased with them or whether or not they are going to be accepted into his presence or whether or not what they're doing is right or at least enough of right. Uh, many Christians live as if God must be appeased, as if they need to earn his favor. I hope today's sermon will help change that, especially for those who struggle with this. And for all of you, whether you struggle with this or not, I hope and pray that this message will bring new joy and vibrancy to your Christian life. So if you have your Bible open, I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and follow along as I read. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. What amazing verses these are. I believe that these critically important verses help us understand that both God's sovereignty and our will must be engaged if we ever expect to be joyful, God-honoring Christians. And beyond that, my thesis is this. When the power of God and the humble and willing obedience of the believer come together, the Christian life is very enjoyable. Let me say that again. When the power of God and the willful, humble obedience of the believer come together, the Christian life is enjoyable. And that is what we want, right? We want enjoyable Christian lives. Nobody's interested in Christian duty, or living that way at least. These verses here, verses 12 and 13, point out these two sides and the result. 
that the power of God combined with humble and willing obedience of the believer come together to produce joy in the Christian life. I'm calling it the sanctification equation. The sanctification equation. Let's look at the first side, our side, as seen in verse 12. To understand our side of the sanctification equation, we must begin by understanding the word therefore. Do you see that at the beginning of verse 12? Therefore is a very important word. Paul is not just randomly throwing out rules and expectations for believers. Paul is, he never does that in any of his letters. As is typical, Paul always lays the groundwork for any practical instruction. He establishes the why before the command. He wants us to know why he is about to give the command to obediently work out our salvation. The therefore in verse 12, of course, points points back to the content of verses 9 through 11. So why should we work out our salvation? Verses 9 through 11 give us a great reason. Do you remember what Paul said in those verses? Do you remember that in verses 9 through 12, God exalted Jesus Christ to the highest possible position because of his humility that he demonstrated in, in condescending in, from heaven to earth as a man? Do you remember that that's the reason God exalted Jesus Christ to that highest position and then from that highest position will receive honor, glory, and praise from every living being? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess is what verses 9 through Uh, 11 say, we will confess that Jesus Christ is God, the sovereign over all. So why are we supposed to obey the commands of verses 12 and 13 that I just read for you? Well, we should obediently work out our salvation with fear and trembling because Jesus, our Savior, who is the God of the universe, desires us to do so. That is what he desires us to do. And he even has reasons for that desire, which I'll get to here in a second. But today I want to encourage you to have a copy of the sermon outline um, in front of you because I think it will help cement in your mind the tremendously important um, information and truths of today's passage. If you don't have a copy of the outline, you can pause this sermon right now and go to our website, sunvalleychurch.net, click on the resources tab, scroll down to the uh, weekly liturgies, and you'll find on today's liturgy the outline of this sermon. I hope you'll keep it in front of you and fill it out. Looking back at verse 12, we see that at the same time Paul is commending the obedience of the Philippians, he's also exhorting them to keep on being obedient. Keep on keeping on. It seems that this group of Christians in Philippi were a faithful group. They were anxious to obey whether Paul was there or not. That's what it says in verse 12. He says, just as you have always obeyed. That word obeyed in the original language is a compound verb that includes the Greek word akouo. It's where we get our word acoustics, which means to hear. It's to hear. And so what what Paul is saying here is this, this group of Christians in Philippi needed to be able to sit and hear the teaching of God's word in order to obey. I think this shows us the importance of regularly sitting under the teaching of God's word as Christians. Have you been doing that, Christian friend? So what have you been taught? Are you listening? Are you obeying is a better question. Just as Lydia and the jailer back in Acts 16 in Philippi both heard Paul's teaching and obeyed it, God wants us 
who are following Christ today to do the same. He wants to sit, us to sit under the teaching of his word and then respond to that teaching in obedience. Many of you have sat under the teaching of God's word for years, maybe your whole life. The question isn't so much whether or not you are in church, but whether or not you are obeying what is preached in church. When the preacher preaches, he's standing in the place of God and delivering God's will and word to you. Are you obeying what you're hearing? The word Paul used in obedience has to do with hearing, listening, and responding. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a penetrating question in this matter. He asks this, is there anything that so thoroughly tests our profession of faith as our reaction to it when it calls us to live a certain kind of life? Let me read that question for you again. Listen closely. Is there anything that so thoroughly tests our profession of the faith as our reaction to it when it calls us to live a certain kind of life? We all like the sound of the grace of God or the free offer of forgiveness, but the authenticity of our faith is revealed when the scripture demands that we live a certain way. Are we listening and obeying? Paul says here in verse 12, our side of the equation, Christian, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. So our side of the sanctification equation is to obediently work out our salvation. Unfortunately, these verses are used to defend works salvation. Some think that these verses teach that salvation is earned or that what we need to be is better people at least. Of course, these verses don't teach that at all. They, these verses teach the exact opposite. The, the verse 12 does not say work for your salvation. It says work out your salvation. What these verses teach is that because you are saved by such a great Savior and have his Holy Spirit living within you, you must now live out the implications of that salvation. Your conduct must reflect your relationship with God, is what Paul is saying. When someone becomes a genuine believer, their life doesn't automatically change overnight. They wake up the next morning with the same problems, the same spouse. Of course, I'm not saying that your spouse is your problem, although it might be. They wake up with the same problems, the same doctrinal misunderstandings, and for the most part, the same sins. But now, now that they are saved, now that they've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they now know that they must begin to change. They now have the Holy Spirit in them and have been given a new heart that understands spiritual things and responds to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. They begin to understand that their conversion must express itself in changed conduct, in changed attitudes. They must now work the implications of the gospel into every corner of their life. That's called sanctification. And what does Paul say? He says, work out your salvation with fear, first of all. Now, just hear me out. Paul is not suggesting that we should fear losing our salvation or be afraid of God in some servile horror. What he meant was to have humility and reverence and spiritual vigilance. We need to be serious Christians, not flippant ones. We need to pursue holiness, not be unconcerned about it, apathetic towards it. Do you know a truly holy person? Are you personal? 
friends or acquaintances with a truly holy person? I think of some Christians of the 16th through 18th century to be holy. Men like John Flavel, Richard Baxter, J.C. Ryle, David Brainerd, John Wesley. You can't read any of their works and not come away with, with the clear idea of their commitment to holiness. I understand, of course, that we live in a different culture than 16th century England, but nonetheless, we might benefit from a more serious perspective on the Christian life that they offer. We would all benefit from deeper commitment to prayer, solitude, meditation, Bible study, self-examination. When we see Jesus face to face, I wonder if we'll wish we had been more holy than we are now. Without a doubt, there's going to be people here who react to this idea by saying, well, Pastor John, you're slipping back into your old nemesis legalism. Uh, and it may be so, and I apologize if it is, but the balance between flippancy and legalism cannot be Bibleless, prayerless complacency. He says, work out your salvation with fear. And then he says also with trembling, fear and trembling. What's he mean there? Well, fear and trembling is a common biblical phrase. And when used, it helps us think, it helps us think more seriously about sin, doesn't it? Yeah. Although God is loving and forgives sins, he also demands obedience. Once we come to Christ, he just says, ah, don't, don't worry about your sin. No. no, he still remains committed to holiness. So God is kind and loving and holy and just. And what that does is it motivates the genuine believer to live with fear and trembling. This is what God said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 66 too. This is the one to whom I will look, God says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see, the fear and trembling in view are not a servile fear and trembling of potential mistreatment by God or a hopeless dread of his judgment. No, it's a reverent awe and a concern of possibly disappointing our God who loves us. It acknowledges that every sin, no matter how small, is an offense against God and it and it produces a strong desire not to grieve him. We don't want to grieve people that we love. And when it comes to God, we do everything we can to not grieve him. As Christians, we want to honor God. But when we sin, we dishonor him. So the kind of fear and trembling that Paul is speaking of guards us against flippancy and indifference to sin. The fear and trembling in view here is a mix of a strong desire to please the Lord with our obedience and a deep affection for him at the same time. That's what fear and trembling mean. It also includes a healthy distrust of self, a sensitive conscience of being on guard against temptation. Why all this vigilance? Well, it's because of the condition of our heart or of our fallen condition. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Friends, our hearts, as you know, can convince us that we're doing great. We can convince ourselves that we're just fine when in fact we've actually developed a calloused heart towards God. Paul told Timothy to flee from evil. Flee from evil and pursue godliness, pursue faith, pursue love. That's what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Flee evil things and pursue godliness, faith, and love. So our side of the equation is to work out the implications of our, of our salvation 
with fear and trembling. I think it's important to know at this, at this juncture that Jesus makes it very clear that we will never slip out of his hands, that we'll never fall away from him, him and lose our salvation. I want to make sure you hear this because some of you have, have very vulnerable and sensitive spirits because of, of the weakness of your faith. I want to make sure you hear me this morning when I say you cannot lose your salvation, that you will not slip out of Jesus' hand. Listen to what Jesus himself says. All that the Father gives me, this is from John 6, by the way, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, and this is the will of him who sent me. And who was that? God the Father. This is the will of God the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You, if you know Jesus, if the, if the Holy Spirit of God has regenerated your soul, no matter how distant you feel now from God, if he has done this work, transforming grace in your heart, we will never lose that relationship to God. Paul says the same thing in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 that we covered a few weeks ago. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If Paul was so confident that these Philippian Christians would in fact one day be in heaven with him, he would not say in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, but there's a chance you might lose your salvation. No, he's not saying that at all. Why should we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Besides the necessity of obedience that Paul puts forth here in these verses, besides that, there is a, a gem of a reason hidden at the end of verse 13. Look at the end of verse 13 with me. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You're thinking, Pastor John, how does that, what, what, what's the gem? The gem is this. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling for our enjoyment. For our enjoyment. You'll see that the translators inserted the word his right before good pleasure. It says, for God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That word his is not in the text, the original language. This is important. And I think it's an unfortunate addition because I believe that the Apostle Paul is specifically telling us that the result of working out our salvation with fear and trembling will not only be to God's good pleasure and enjoyment, but to ours as well. It's for both of us, for God and us, this enjoyment promised. If there is anything that motivates you and me, it's enjoyment, isn't it? The reason we struggle to lose weight is because we enjoy food. The reason that we do what we do is because we enjoy, we enjoy it. People do what they want to do. I think that you know that enjoyment is the most basic motivator in all of life. Do, do you know why you will work out your salvation with fear and trembling if you're a, if you're a believer? <laughs> it's because it results in enjoyment. That's why you will do it. Not only to obey God, but to pursue enjoyment. It's, it's, the, it's the, the hedonist, the Christian hedonist idea that Piper produces in his book, Desiring God. The reason that you and I will ultimately work out our salvation with fear and trembling, the reason we will work the gospel implications into every corner of our life is because it will bring joy, joy to each of us who do it. 
It's for our good pleasure. Notice it's good pleasure, not evil pleasure. It's like playing a board game. You don't set up a board game and play, you don't set up a board game just to play by the rules. No, you set up a board game to have fun. You don't play baseball so that you can follow the rules of the game. You play baseball because you enjoy baseball. But it loses its enjoyment if you don't play by the rules. Isn't that correct? It ruins it for everybody if someone won't play by the rules. Friends, listen. God is not opposed to pleasure. He invented it. He's just opposed to bad pleasure because it's bad for us. He loves us and wants to protect us from things that would harm us. And so he promises good pleasure for those who work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Our side of the equation is to work out the implications of our salvation with fear and trembling because it will produce enjoyment. Let's look at God's side. One basic thing that we must understand is that without the truth of verse 13, it's God who works in us. Verse 12 could never happen. These verses strike the perfect biblical balance between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. This is what Jesus meant in John 15, verses 4 and 5. He said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Do you see it? There's God's side on our side. Our side is to abide. God's side is to produce fruit through us. Verse 13, back in Philippians 2, emphasizes the pivotal necessity of God in the equation of sanctification. Without God, there's no salvation or sanctification. And notice how Paul emphasizes this. He says, for it is God who works in you. We work out, God works in. We work out, God works in. Paul said, God is at work in you who believe. You can't work out what God hasn't worked in. It is God, not your favorite author. It is God, not John Piper. It's God, not John Schubert, who is at work in you. God began the good work in you, and God will complete it. He is at work in you and I who know and love him. This is really important and amazing. The God of the universe is personally vested in your spiritual growth. God is a personal God who cares personally for you. For it is God. It's not a philosophy. It's not a worldview. It's not a force, an idea. It's not an author or a preacher. It's God who works in you and me. Oh, he may use authors, preachers, and books and so forth, but God is the one actively involved in our spiritual growth and sanctification. This God who descended from heaven to become man, lived a perfect life, and died to deal with your sins is continuing to demonstrate his personal interest, love, and care for you by working in you every single day. He's at work in you. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 64, verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. It is God who is at work in you. 
This word work comes from the Greek word energeo, energeo. This is where we get our word energy. God is providing the energy to work out the implications of the gospel into every area of your life. His energy is the source of our change and his energy is the active thing in everyone who believes. It is at the name of Jesus that we bow and work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us. In the same way that no one can be justified by their own effort, neither can anyone be sanctified by their own effort. Paul understood this and made a point of it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. He says to them, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit of God, are you now being perfected by your flesh? I don't think so. God must work in us. God must work through us to accomplish his purposes in our lives. God works in us and through us. Listen to how he's demonstrating this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Luke says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Paul is, I mean, Luke is taking the words of Christ and saying, I will give you energy. I will work in you to accomplish my purposes. This is what Paul said in Colossians 1.29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I struggle with his energy. There's another way to to look at verses 12 and 13 of Philippians 2. It's divine power to work out our salvation. And what's he do? God is at work in you to will. As much as we are personally responsible and committed to working out our salvation, we must be aware that it is God who's doing the work in us and through us. It's not of our own doing. Paul says that God's work begins with addressing our wills. For it is God who works in you to will. God is getting our wills moving in the right direction. God is conforming your will and my will to his will. He is taking your selfish will and transforming it by his grace into the will of his son, Jesus Christ. And we saw what the will of Jesus Christ was demonstrated in his life when he came, humbly serving us. This is part of what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. God takes the will of of Jesus and transposes it over our will, overtakes our will. God is personally involved in guiding your thoughts and your affections. This is what the psalmist meant in Psalm 119, verse 36. Remember that psalm? We're still working our way through that as a church, but in Psalm 119, verse 36, the psalmist says this, "'Incline my heart to your testimonies.'" What he was praying was that God would grab hold of his will and align it to God's will. That is exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 13 of Philippians 2. God is at work in you to will, to change your will. And how does he do this? First, he does this by revealing the places in your life that don't match his will. He shines the spotlight on that area of your life that's not matching his will. He begins to cause a spiritual dissatisfaction with things that he wants changed in your life. You'll find yourself saying things like, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. For some reason, I'm not interested in that anymore. Secondly, 
not only does God reveal places in our lives that don't match his will, but secondly, he grants Godward affections. He implants desires in us to do and be all that God would be honored by. He begins to bring about a hatred for sin. Have you noticed that in your Christian life, friend? A growing hatred of sin and then a, a genuine desire for godliness? This is what God does. He grants Godward affections. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let me explain that verse by showing you what it means in Philippians chapter 2. Delight yourself in the Lord simply means working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Working the gospel implications into every area of your life. That's what delighting yourself in the Lord means. If you do that, what's going to happen? He's going to give you the desires of your heart. In other words, God will implant his desires in you. Your will will match his will. Your affections will match his affections. This is God. This is his work. And this heartfelt change of desire always results in good works. That's the next thing Paul says. For it is God who works in you to will and to work. He changes our will and then he gets us to work. This is a real basic doctrine of the New Testament. The doctrine goes like this. Unless God moves in our hearts, minds, and wills, we will never pursue him. We will never accomplish good works for him. We cannot, we cannot of our own free will pursue God, become mature Christians, grow in faith, or even accept the initial offer of grace without God initiating the activity. We are 100% incapable of anything spiritual without the intervening work of God. He must regenerate the heart. He must excite the will and give us the desires. This is God's work in us, Christian friend. It's exciting to know that he's actively doing this in us. Free will is a very misunderstood element of the human experience, wouldn't you say? But you might say, well, I have the free will whether or not to open my Bible. And I would answer this way, yes, you do not. What do I mean? What I mean is this, you can physically go choose to grab your Bible and open it, but if your intentions are to grow in faith, that came from the Spirit of God. That came from the mind of God on your behalf. You might be, respond to this by saying, well, then why am I responsible for growing in faith, growing spiritually? Well, if it's all up to God to initiate this activity in my life, then why does he hold me responsible for obedience? It's a good question. And it's answered here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So the reason that you are responsible for growing in faith is because the Bible says you are. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Is, that, is this the only spot? No, there's hundreds of those kind of commands in the New Testament. Try this one, 2 Peter 3.18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a command to grow. How about this one? Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. There are literally hundreds of these kind of commands in the New Testament that we must be aware of. So why does God work in us to change our wills and our conduct? Why is God interested in working in us? Well, look at the end of verse 13 again. For enjoyment. For the same reason that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for enjoyment. This is for God's enjoyment. The, the good pleasure or enjoyment at the end of verse 13 is not only ours, but it is designed by Paul to let us see that it is also God's enjoyment. 
God loves working in us to change our will and to change our work. God is not strengthening our will and our actions so that we'll become his robotic slaves. Neither of us would enjoy that, God or us. God himself is working with our wills and our actions to make us and him happy for both of our enjoyment. Convinced that God himself is actively involved in our spiritual progress, we should gain a new and undeterred motivation to joyfully make much of Jesus. When we make much of Jesus, God is happy. So why does God save people? Follow me here, Sun Valley. Why does God save people? Why does God transform his people? Why does God use people? It's real easy for our enjoyment and his. For our enjoyment and his. He enjoys it. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. God enjoys extending grace and mercy to undeserving people. God enjoys taking rebels who have been ruined by sin and totally transforming them into image bearers of Jesus Christ. God enjoys using weak and fallen individuals to do joyfully accomplish his purposes. Maybe you've been going your own way for a long time now. You may even believe that you're a Christian but have been living for yourself and unfulfilled, of course. Well, can you look at what we've talked about today? Can you look at what Paul has written and see a better option? Do you recognize here that if you will go all in with Jesus, that God will fill you full of joy? That is Paul's intent. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for your enjoyment because God is at work in you to will and to work for his enjoyment. Let's join the Holy Spirit. Let's join the Father and Son in this wonderful process of sanctification. Pray with me. Oh, Lord God, we thank you so much that you love us. We thank you that you came to this planet 2,000 years ago to make all of this possible, to, to, to take away our sin, to save us from our sin and, and save us from the, the punishment of our sin. We, we are grateful beings. And beyond this, Father, we also want to, to acknowledge our need for your continued work in our life. We, we, we acknowledge that we need the Holy Spirit to continue to transform each of us by, by addressing our wills, by shaping our wills, and giving us Godward affections so that we will work out the purposes of God in our life. God, these verses tell us that if we will do this, if we will work out the implications of our salvation with fear and trembling, that it will result in joy, and we want joy. Oh, Father, grant joy to your people who humbly and obediently embrace these truths. Be pleased, be joyful in our efforts to do this. Oh, God, make this happen for us at Sun Valley Church. And I pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who makes all of this possible. Amen.